Sometimes I feel like Adam, cause I've got more than I need. But even when I have it all, I want what's out of reach. Maybe I should learn my lesson, like Steve was talking to me. He said I wouldn't lie, you should not go to that tree. The serpent knows the apple grows from a forbidden seed. Oh, you want what you can't have, but you've got all the things you need. There was Adam, there was Eve, and there was Steve. Hello and welcome to episode 1533 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. yeah. Drinking a lot of tea. And Good. I'm wondering if you can drink too much tea. Oh, gosh. From my Googling, it seems like you can't really drink too much tea for at least the kind of tea I'm drinking. I'm drinking green tea, and it sure seems like you cannot necessarily OD on green tea. I don't know. <laughs> don't take my word for that. Ask Anthony Fauci or something. But I have not seen really hard evidence that I am hurting myself with the amount of tea I am drinking right now. But it's hard not to when you're stuck inside all day and you're just kind of going from your computer to the place where you have tea to back to your computer and yeah. uh, it's very easy to just keep refilling but the nice thing about tea is that it's very tough to get addicted to it at least in my experience it's not like coffee which i think when a lot of people hear that i have this strange sleep schedule and i'm up at all hours and then i tell them i don't drink coffee they say how do you do it you don't drink coffee and i'm scared to drink coffee because i feel like i'd get so dependent on it that i'd very quickly quickly become a caffeine fiend and I'd be unable to function without it. And I don't want that to happen, but it yeah. seems like tea is a low enough level that I can just kind of constantly sip it. And yet if I don't have it for a while, I'm fine and I don't get caffeine headaches or anything like that. So I recommend tea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it would be like to be like an anthropomorphized rocket ship. Like, I don't know exactly what it would be like to um, be able to blast off from the Earth with a force sufficient to send human beings to the moon. Yeah. But I have something of an idea because you really do know when you've had too much coffee yeah. because your heart starts to pound and you feel like you're going to blast off into space and uh, you get tunnel vision and your head hurts. And so yeah. you do get those physical signifiers but they are very unpleasant and um, yeah. then tapering from there is also unpleasant and so i think that your approach is is good and um yeah. you should Coffee stick scares with it me. yeah that's the hard stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to stick away from that ben because you don't sleep enough but you might just never sleep and that would be <laughs> that would know. be very bad we need you to yes. we need you to stick it out buddy I will remain a teetotaler, so okay. to speak. All right. <laughs> so we are doing two interviews today, which I hope will be informative for everyone right now, because one of the nice things is that when I am up at odd hours, there's sometimes baseball going on right now. And it's a nice period that there's any kind of baseball happening. And that is courtesy of the Chinese Professional Baseball League, the CPBL. So high-level professional baseball is being played in Taiwan now. And it's being streamed in English. And I know that a lot of our listeners have been paying attention to that. And the Korea baseball organization, KBO, is about to be back, coming back on May 5th. And so because it's the only baseball we have right now, I think a lot of people are maybe more interested in that than they normally would be. And to fill that need, 
we are talking to two experts, Rob Liu, who is the person behind CPBL Stats website and Go CPBL on Twitter, and Dan Kurtz, who runs the MyKBO site and the MyKBO Twitter account. So they're going to fill us in on why we should pay attention and what we should pay attention to and who are the players and who are the teams and what are the ongoing storylines because it's baseball. It's very recognizably baseball in a comforting way, but it's also a different league and it's tough to just start watching a, a league like that without any preparation. It's like starting a TV show in season six or something and you have no idea what's going on and you don't even have a previously on and who are these characters and what is this show actually like. And so helpful to have a primer, I think. And that's what this episode is primarily for. Yeah, I am envious of people who are in time zones that are a little bit more conducive to uh, yeah. checking out some of these games that have been streaming. It's it's kind of brutal in Pacific time, but I think that my um, desire for baseball and you know my aforementioned tolerance for coffee might mean that yeah. I just tough it out one of these days because you know you get. I think it is uh, good to be careful when observing something that is new to you to not you know make it twee or strange, but. But the cardboard cutouts of people and the mascots and the cheerleaders to know there's some deeply Meg stuff going on here. So (laughs) I'm going to need to engage with it in a more serious way. And also, it's just really uh, great to to get to see baseball. And I hope that we um, get some of this KBO stuff figured out because, you know, there's just there's so much baseball when Major Mm -hmm. League Baseball is in season the way that we are used to and the way that it ought to be. And we do not necessarily do the diligence that we really should on leagues that exist all around the world, some of which end up supplying players to the majors. And it would be, it would sure be nice to have, you know, mm-hmm. known about Ryu before he was getting ready to be posted in a more meaningful way. So yeah. I hope that we get, you know, it's weird to talk about silver linings in this time, but I hope that one of the silver linings is that we, you know, do a little diligence that we probably should have been doing all along. So. Yep, they've got robot fans. Forget oh robot umps. Gosh. They've got robot fans in Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, um, you know, someone sat up in the sky and said, how can we design a maximally strange experience? And then that person decided to be cruel and vindictive and put it at a time when I really ought to be sleeping. <laughs> Um, yeah. It is a shame that we are not going to get to experience the fan environment uh, in either of those leagues because we're so stuffy and boring here and we could enjoy <laughs> baseball so much more and in such a, a lively way and we decide not to. And I think if we showed people a little bit of fun, then they might be less stuffy about it. But, you know, obviously public safety must be our primary concern here. So robot yes. fans and cheerleaders the cheerleaders to no one ben there's no one there (laughs) right (laughs) yeah there's a lot we can learn it's a kind of a cultural exchange program and i think there's a lot we can learn about the style of baseball that's played in those places and also the fact that they are capable of playing baseball right now without terribly endangering anyone that's something that we talk about too so hopefully we can follow in their footsteps so we did along those lines get a question from patreon supporter matthew who said, what do you think it would take for English broadcasts of overseas leagues for them to garner a meaningful following among North American baseball fans? And I think he's specifically wondering about CPBL, KBO, but we've gotten this question before about winter leagues and why aren't those broadcast in a more 
accessible way? And can we really build up a following for those leagues? And we may have addressed that before, but I don't know. Do you think there is any long-term or even short-term now in the absence of Major League Baseball way that those leagues could be more than a novelty, I guess, for people who are used to MLB? I think that, yeah, I I think so. I don't know that the audience would ever quite be the same in terms of the scale as uh, Major League Baseball. I think that the the language barrier is a pretty easily surmountable one. I do think that it is useful. It's much easier to follow the narrative of a game if the booth is speaking in a language that is more familiar to you. You know, this is why I think it's really great when major league teams make sure to have a Spanish language broadcast because you want to be able to reach people in the language that they sort of understand sport in best. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that, you know, The viewing audience across all entertainment is so fractured, but if you give people something interesting and dynamic and you have a fun fan experience that you can kind of feel coming through the TV, I know that when the Mariners played the A's in Japan, you could feel it from the Tokyo Dome. Like, it was incredible. So I think that there's definitely space for it. I think that, you know, it'll be trickier should play resume in the U.S. because, you know, the sort of average level of play is higher, even with teams like the Tigers and the Orioles. And so I think that the the quality of baseball may have some effects there, but I do think that people will be interested. And I don't, I really still don't have a great answer for why we don't broadcast more baseball from the Winter Leagues, because gosh, are we hungry for it when we don't have it. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that, I think that there's definitely a place for it. If nothing else, you know, we have significant communities from those countries. And so being able to watch mm-hmm. baseball from Korea or Japan or Taiwan, I think would be really appealing to a lot of folks. So yeah, yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough sell for your casual mainstream baseball fan, probably, who maybe has some bias against sports from other countries or just likes the baseball that they know. And it would really take some persuading or the absence, the extended absence of the baseball they know to get into a state of withdrawal where they'll just take any baseball and then maybe they'll give it a chance and they'll figure out that they like it. But I don't know, Sam answered this Patreon supporter, and you know he thinks there's a, a pretty small number of really hardcore baseball geeks like us and like the listeners of this podcast. Maybe many of them or most of them are already listening to this podcast, because I know that a lot of people in our Facebook group, for instance, are watching and talking about these streams and having game threads. And I just, I don't know that that's something that will catch on in a, a huge way. Maybe if ESPN does start broadcasting these things, then people will kind of come to it casually. But Sam was saying that he thought it would take like a lot of American baseball players joining that league Mm. for some reason. And that that would provide the the hook or the continuity that people would get into that. So if MLB couldn't continue, let's say, this year or next year or something, and they could only go over and play in Japan or Korea or Taiwan, and maybe then you'd have people tuning in just to see the, the familiar faces and personalities. But otherwise, he is pretty pessimistic, I think, about it catching on in a big way. I mean, look, I hope we get the baseball that we know and love back soon, and not that people abandon these other leagues, but that it won't be the only option for them. But 
people like us who love it and are hooked, they will watch almost any kind of, of professional baseball, especially if it's the only option for them. It's just hard for me to put myself beyond that bubble and say that someone who is just kind of consuming baseball the way that your average sort of casual fan does would actually take the initiative to to watch a, a stream of Korean or, or Taiwanese baseball. I don't know if that might be a bridge too far. I mean, there are lots of baseball fans who watch only their team, right? And don't tune into other teams' games. So would those people tune in to see Taiwanese baseball? Maybe if you took their team away, but still, I don't know. Yeah, my optimism might explain my surprise at how our traffic numbers fell after the season <laughs> was postponed. <laughs> I'm gaining some insight into myself, Ben. I'm learning something about the old Meg. And I can't believe that Sam would insult Dan Straley and Adrian Samson that way. Is that, Yeah. are Dan and Adrian not enough for you, the viewing public? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. not. <laughs> but. Anyway, I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this podcast right now would enjoy it. So give it a shot and we will arm you with the information you need later in this episode. So just the only thing I wanted to bring up before we get to our guests is that Steve Dalkowski died. He died, seems like, on Sunday, but it was reported on Friday. And Dalkowski, I don't know that we've talked about him ever at length on this podcast, but if we had somehow been recording Effectively Wild in the late 50s and early 60s, he would have been like the patron saint of this podcast, probably. We would have talked about him every day the way that we've talked about William Tastio or Shohei Otani, because he is just one of these larger-than-life figures. He was 80 years old, and, and he passed away from the coronavirus, but he had had some underlying health issues for years, and he lived a very hard life off the field. He partied hard. He drank hard. He had a, an alcohol abuse problem for years, and he was suffering from dementia in his later years that was brought on by those years of alcohol abuse, and he had lost some of his memories of his playing career. But I think when he was a player, he was just the most tantalizing, sensational player, like right up there with fictional players like Roy Hobbs or or Sid Finch or, of course, Nuke Lelouch, who he inspired. So for people who don't know his story, he was, can't even say a hard-throwing, he was like the hard-throwing pitcher, and he was signed by the Orioles in the late 50s as an 18-year-old, and he just has stat lines that you will never, ever see anyone else ever have again, and no one else has ever had. He, according to seemingly everyone who ever saw him, was just the hardest thrower who has ever been. They called him White Lightning, and the pitches weren't just fast, but they moved a ton, and he had thick glasses, which only added to the intimidation factor, and he was like 5'10", 5'11", 170 pounds left handed, not ultra-athletic looking, so it was just this miraculous arm that didn't appear to be attached to a miraculous physique. Of course, it's very difficult to verify these things, but people who saw him and also saw pick your hard thrower of the day or any day, Nolan Ryan, whomever, he supposedly threw harder than any of them did. And over the decades, I think some kind of tall tales have sprung up and the legend has grown But it certainly seems like there was a lot of fact behind that fiction. 
And just looking at his stats here, so I, I tallied really the the peak Dalkowski wildness. And that was the thing. He threw harder than everyone else, but he also could not find the strike zone. So no one could hit him, but he couldn't throw strikes. And like in high school, he pitched a 24 strikeout no hitter. Guys wouldn't even stand in the batter's box. <laughs> and he also threw an 18 strikeout no hitter with 18 walks where he somehow didn't allow a run. He had a later no hitter in pro ball where he struck out 21 guys, walked eight and only threw fastballs in that game. It's just, well, wild, so to speak. If you look at his stats from 1957 through 1961, so five minor league seasons, and this was kind of all over the place, A ball, and they had B and C and D ball back then, so kind of the the lower levels of the minors. He threw 436 innings in those seasons. He struck out 14.7 batters per nine. And again, remember, this was the 50s and the 60s when people didn't do that. So this was like leagues where people were striking out maybe five or six per nine often. And he was coming in here with like 17 (laughs) Ks per nine sometimes. The only problem was to go along with those 14.7 Ks per nine, he had 16 walks per nine. So... That's not what you want. And the thing is, though, that no one could hit him. So he had like five hits per nine and 0.4 homers per nine. In 57 and 58, he actually struck out or walked three quarters of the hitters he faced. So no one was really hitting him or hitting him that hard. But between the walks and the wild pitches, 1.6 wild pitches per nine, he had a 6.42 ERA combined across those seasons and sometimes it was a good deal worse than that so it was always like well if he could only throw strikes but he absolutely could not throw strikes ever at least until 1962 or so which is when Earl Weaver intervened and Earl Weaver kind of figured out how to get his stuff somewhat under control and the key was and from all accounts and you know he had an IQ test taken at the time and it said that he was not the the brightest fellow perhaps and so some of the mechanical interventions and instructions that pitching coaches would try to implement just didn't really stick with him and Earl Weaver the story goes just kind of told him to take something off his fastball and not throw as hard as he possibly could but still throw harder than anyone else did. And suddenly he kind of got under control, at least by Dalkowski standards. And suddenly he was only walking like six per nine or something, which, you know, was maybe workable with the, the strikeouts that he had. And so he did climb and he made it up to double A and triple A in 63. And he was in big league spring training, I think, with the Orioles. And it really looked like he might get a shot and he might actually get things under control. And then he hurt his arm and he had like a pinched ulnar nerve. It was probably the sort of thing that you would get Tommy John surgery for today, but they didn't know that then. And when he came back, he was not the same guy and and the fastball was not what it had been. And so really just as he was at the precipice of possibly making it, it all fell apart. But you look back at the the legends and the stories and the stats, and I mean, he's maybe the most famous minor leaguer who never made the majors, but is famous for his baseball exploits. And it's just one of those great what ifs, if he could have controlled himself on and off the field, could he have made it? But that was kind of the whole key to his story was that he could not control anything. And that's what makes it such an amazing story. Yeah. And 
Obviously, he lived a lot of life in between that career and when he passed, but just a sad end to it. Another reminder for the baseball family that we are not immune to suffering in the light of all of this. So, Yeah, I mean, the the stories, it's like, it's weird because there are all these stories and a lot of them are like possibly apocryphal. And so you hear the stories of like how Ted Williams, you know, took one pitch and said it was the fastest pitch he ever saw and just stepped out of the box. But it's like one of these things that it's not totally verified and you you hear it and everyone repeats it, but it's not like he is recorded saying that necessarily. And so when you go back and read Dalkowski's stories, you just keep coming across phrases like, it said that he did this, or it said that so-and-so said this, but it's really tough to pin down the details. No one has video of him pitching ever, which... Seems strange in that he pitched for several years, but I guess he was pitching in front of mostly small minor league crowds. But still, like you, you get home videos of you know players from the twenties or something. You'd think that someone at some point would have had some footage of Steve Dalkowski, but it just doesn't exist. And yeah. so it's one of these things where like the stats are what they are, and everyone who saw him and would be in a position to know said that he threw harder than everyone else. But you can't see it, and you can't. Very verify some of those stories and so it's this kind of confounding thing where some sort of fact meets some sort of fiction but the only time he was ever clocked at an actual velocity and people said you know he threw 110 he threw 115 he threw 120 and it's like that can't possibly be true and you have to imagine that a lot of that was exaggeration like it's just it doesn't seem possible that this one guy could have been somehow throwing 110 even in the 60s or 50s and no one since then has sniffed that and the, the fastest players that we have reliable speeds for is like 105 you know could he have actually been that great an outlier? Seems unlikely and seems like maybe guys were just not throwing as hard in general back then and so he stood out. But the one time that they did really try to clock him, he threw at an army base. He threw like in this laser system. This was 1958 and they took him to the army proving ground in Aberdeen and they had this setup where you could record the velocity of projectiles and so you'd throw this pitch through a, a box and it had a, a laser that would measure the speed as it crossed home plate. And Bob Feller was once clocked using something similar. And Dalkowski was throwing from a flat surface and I think with flat shoes. And he was throwing the day after he had pitched like a 150 plus pitch outing. And he couldn't locate his pitches well enough to actually get a reading on this thing. So he was throwing (laughs) over and over and over again. They finally clocked one after like 40 minutes and it said that he was throwing 93.5, but that was at speed at home plate. So you, right. you add maybe like eight miles per hour or something. So that's, you know, triple digits and that's flat surface with a, a tired arm and right. no spikes and everything. And so you, you know, you kind of do the adjustment. It's like, well, maybe, maybe it could have been true <laughs> under ideal conditions, but I think that method was somewhat inaccurate. So, you know, maybe it was a little faster than it actually was, but I kind of wish, like, I want to know how hard he threw just to settle the mystery. Yeah. And yet. Maybe it's better not to know, like unless yeah. we actually did have him reliably clocked at 110 or, or 115 or something like anything in the realm of what we think of as possibility now would be kind of disappointing. You know, if it were 102 or something like that'd be incredibly impressive, especially for that time. But 
so much of it is like, well, did he actually throw 110? Is that humanly possible? So in a way, I'm kind of glad that we can't actually know the answer to that question. Yeah, sometimes it's better to have the mystery and be able to hope on what a you know 40-minute layoff and one pitch on flat yeah. ground can get you. Yeah. If you look at his estimated pitch counts using the formulas that we use for that before we have recorded pitch counts, he was averaging like 200 plus pitches. Like in 1957, it was like 229 pitches per nine innings, 232, 238. And that was one of the things they tried to get him to be more under control was just like tire him out and, you know, have him be too tired to throw wildly. And that just didn't work because <laughs> he like had so much stamina that he couldn't do it. And it's just, you know, there are stories of him like shattering an umpire's mask with a pitch or tearing part of a batter's ear off. But he didn't actually hit that many batters because he was wild like north and south more than Mm. east and west, maybe because he was so scared of hitting anyone. But, you know, he would throw balls like that bounced halfway to home plate or, or just sailed over the catcher's head and went through the backstop or something. But he wasn't regularly injuring guys which is good because then it would have been a a safety issue. But man, it's just like, you know, wild stallion that couldn't be tamed kind of thing. And I wonder how much of it was just that he had no control. Like if you took Aroldis Chapman and said, hey, you can just wildly throw this pitch wherever, maybe he could throw harder than 103 or 105 or whatever. But anyway, it's one of those absolute legends of baseball and sorry to see him go and sorry he had sort of a a difficult post-playing career but the story of steve dalkowski will be part of baseball legends forever yeah all right let's take a quick break and we'll be back with rob to talk about the cppl followed by dan to discuss the kpl We are joined now by Rob Liu, who is the proprietor of cpblstats.com, and he also runs the Twitter account, GoCPBL. Hey, Rob. Hey, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the CPBL and became one of the English language sources for information about the league, and also what it's been like for there to be such worldwide interest just because CPL is the only game in town right now. Well, I've been a long-time baseball fan since I was young. I mean, I was born into a baseball family. Both of my parents, uh, they were a huge baseball fan. And then I sort of grew up going to the game. And over the years, uh, you know, you, you sort of drifted apart. But I sort of started this site back in 2015 when I found out there's not much of a, the English content for, for about the CPBL is almost non-existent on the internet. Mm-hmm. So I I saw a market and I went for it and it, you know five years later still doing this yeah so as for what sort of what sort of stuff I mean it's pretty good I'm getting getting all the international attention right now due to the coronavirus so I guess in a way I'm sort of happy to see you know because the CPBO has been has always been this 
biggest secret little lead that nobody knows about. Mm-hmm. So it's it's good. It's good to finally get some you know recognition from from the international audience. If readers of Fangraphs and listeners to this podcast go to your site and look at the stat pages, they're going to find some familiar stats there, like WRC Plus and FIP. Where is Taiwanese baseball in terms of teams' use of analytics and advanced stats, or are you out ahead of where the league is? The thing is, most of most of the team they do have some sort of tracking system installed in their home stadium, but unfortunately, those data are not available to the public, so we don't really. I'm sure the team uses it, but I don't think it's just not available to the, to the public. So uh, for us, anyway, what we can do is we can only use the the number that is available to us. So which is a very basic stuff, you know, from the CBB official website. And I guess in a way, sort of in a way, we couldn't calculate, you know, the WAR for positional player because all the defensive stats are are pretty much missing. We couldn't do it. Sure. So. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. And in terms of the way that teams approach roster construction and on-field strategy, where would you put them in terms of their use of analytics and how it informs the way they build their teams or play the game itself? You starting to see a trend. I wouldn't say a trend, but every now and then you start seeing they start shifting forward. Like you know the the second the second the second batter in the lineup. They used to back in the day used to be the assistant or bunk guy, but these days you do see a lot of people who can really hit in in the second slot. So I guess that's a that's a new trend. I also think I also think they also really based on uh, on base percentage as well. But again, I don't really work for the team. I don't know what's their what's the you know the the decision making behind setting the lineup. But this is just purely from observing. So, what has the situation been in Taiwan that has allowed baseball to return so soon? What has the country done to stem the the spread of the pandemic and make it safe to bring baseball back? And is there anything that the CPBL has done that maybe MLB could learn from as it decides when and how to bring baseball back? So, what the Taiwanese government did was they acted really fast all the way back in January. So. We pretty much start screening all the passenger that came from China or overseas, and then they they always one or two step ahead. Basically, their approach is just do exactly the opposite of what the WHO is saying. Mm. And in a way, it's really kind of sad because we are not part of the WHO, so we know if that happened in Taiwan, if if we reach to the community spread, we are pretty much. Uh, left to fend for ourselves. No one would. They, no one would be there to help us. So that's why I think you got the government's a bit aggressive in this sort of in their approach to this uh to to this matter. And what the CPBL have done is, I think throughout spring training they still allow fan to be in there. But what they did was they they installed a bunch of those infrared temperature measuring machine at the gate. So it pretty much flag anything that's over a certain, you know, a certain degree. So if, for example, if you're over, I don't know, 37.5 Celsius, I don't know that in, in Fahrenheit, but you have to convert that yourself. <laughs> so, you know, what, what will happen is, you know, you're the, you, you pretty much, you can't get into the game. And before, before you, before entering the game, they'll give you hand sanitizer and they sort of want you not to get too close to each other. 
So that's what they have been doing at the, or at least during the spring training. So obviously, baseball there is enjoying a new international audience, as we discussed. What are some of the differences, whether it's rule changes or structure that might be present between professional baseball in Taiwan versus what an American audience is used to watching Major League Baseball? Okay, so the level of play in Taiwan is roughly, I'll put a high A to double A, that sort of range, maybe on a good day, maybe on the 2.5 A, but on a bad day down to single A. But in terms of major difference, we're talking about what's well, a pure hitting league. So a lot of time you'll hit, you'll see team putting out 10 runs on the scoreboard and in the next an inning or two, they'll, they'll give it everything away. Another major difference is the fan cheering culture. So mm-hmm. in the United States, it's all quiet. You know, people go to the game, they chat into each other, they'll, 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 they'll do their stuff. But in Taiwan, it's a, the, the game is blasted with uh, non-stop, non-stop music. So when players are bad, you have music, theme song blasting at full volume in the back, and you got fan cheering, dancing, chanting to, to support their player. What has it been like for you watching games now where we've, I think, all seen the, you know, the, the cardboard cutouts of fans that they've put in the stands there and um, they're trying to simulate the environment by having piped in sound, but it's obviously very different than what you just described. What has that been like for you as a longtime observer of the league? Uh, how have you experienced that? Uh, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's... They are pretty much doing the exactly the same thing, just without a fan. So we're still getting... It, it, it's actually quite funny seeing all the cheerleader they dancing in, they just trying to entertain all the couple fans. Yeah, and <laughs> it makes no sense. But hey, you know what? <laughs> you know what? You want to? If you're gonna do it, yeah, do it. Why not? So I guess in a way they do. They are trying to keep it. They are trying to keep it the way as it is. But but you know, like given so during the broadcast, you still see you still see pretty much everything. It's just only the only difference is just without without the fans. And can you tell us a little bit about the history and the evolution of the league? How did it come to be? How has it grown over time? And how popular is it in Taiwan compared to other sports? So the league was established back in 1990 and then got really popular during the mid-90s. The attendance was at all-time high and the leagues are expanding. At first, they expanded to six and then expanded to seven. And then they added another league called the Taiwan Major League, which added another 14. So I think back in 1997, we have two leagues and 11 active teams. However, between, however, between mid 90s all the way to, to 2009, 2010, you know, the league was hit by a string of never ending game fixing scandal. I'm sure Everybody heard about that, uh, former Brewer player, Don Ocus. He talked about his, uh, experience sort of being kidnapped by the gangster in Taiwan. Mm. So yeah, that, that sort of stuff happened all the time. Yeah, if anyone has not checked out uh, the Wikipedia page for Jin Hui Sao, who was a player in the majors and was a highly touted prospect, and he has sort of a, a really wild Wikipedia page with all the entries about his throwing games or allegedly throwing games and then trying to come back and being expelled and banished and getting signed again. And it's just kind of an amazing story. And uh, I was sort of disappointed that he never really panned out as a major league pitcher because he was very promising. But that was uh, something that I guess 
other Taiwanese players have had some level of involvement with that kind of activity. And go go back to sell that guy. He, he <laughs> broke my heart, you know. What that's yeah. that's all I can say. I mean, this is the guy who I follow him all the way to from from minor all the way to the to the major. Yeah. I mean, I used to back in the day. I used to wake up at three in the morning or four in the morning, listen to the minor league baseball the radio. And to listen and see what how he's doing, and then later on you find out a guy where you spend so much time invested in him, and he just turned out to be a turned out to be a garbage. So, <laughs> uh, it, 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 all I can say is really it, it broke my heart yeah. seeing seeing guys like this uh, decided to to go down that path. Yeah. All right, go back go back to the game fixing path. So, yes. <laughs> so over the year. It's never ending. It's just one scandal, one after another, one after another. And essentially what it does to the league is it, it just keep pressing that reset button over and over again. So whenever a league starts building some sort of momentum, you know, they try to move away from that, from the scandal, everything just re- revert back to it again. So we're talking about the entire team getting busted or the high tier player getting busted. So to give you some idea, it's a lot like Every couple of years, a Mike Trout or a Clayton Kershaw, that sort of caliber, you got busted for, for, for scandal. So this talent wise, it's, you know, it's everything sinks to the, sinks to the bottom. The, the attendance were all time low. I believe the lowest it got was down to a, down to a thousand, I think. A thousand people per game. And some game where I usually go to, they, you know, only like 500, 600 people at a game at the same time. So this, yeah, attendance were all time low. So after that, you know, with all that stuff going on, all the teams started to ex- uh, to disband. So we, you know, we're down to six, and then eventually we're down to four. So in nine, so after that, after maybe after twenty oh nine, the league started to, you know, they started keeping keeping themselves clean, and then with a bunch of new policy being implemented. They managed to keep it clean all that time. And in uh, 2019, last year, we have a new expansion team coming. So this is the Weichun Dragons. They used to be a founding member, but they disbanded back in 2000 or 1999. So after 20 years, they decided to rejoin the CPBL. So in 2021, it will be a fighting league. And for fans who are tuning in for the first time um, from the U.S., you know, it's often a lot more fun when you're uh, engaging with a new league to pick a team and decide you're a fan of that team. So if you could tell uh, fans here in the U.S. one thing about each of the teams in the league to make them excited and want to pick that roster as their roster of players, what would what would those things be? Okay, so we'll, be- we'll begin with the defending champion. So the defending champion is the Rakuten Monkeys. They were formerly known as the Lamigo Monkey. They are a bit like the Oakland A's, I believe, because they they were a, they were a really small market team. They knew they couldn't compete with other rich team in terms of you know, financially anyway. So instead of competing directly, what they did was they start invest heavily in their scouting department, and it worked really well for them. Yeah, uh, they won like uh what five championships out of the last six season. Uh, a few players to look out for will be Zhu Yuxian. That's the guy that's been hitting all the home run lately. I don't have his stats in front of me right now, but I believe he hit about seven home run in seven games so far. And yeah, he just 
he's been he's been unreal so far so far over season. The next thing would be another thing up north called the Fubang Guardian. They are a little bit like your Dodgers. A really really good lineup on paper. They are really really good, but they are unable to bring home that championship. So a player to look out for that organization would be Henry Sosa. Would be a good one. So Henry Sosa is the I guess the former Astro pitcher, and who later went to pitch in the KBO. And last year he had a really good perform, uh, a strong performance in the CPBO. He dominated the league. So which even earned him a contract to back to the KBO. So this year I believe the Guardian decided to lock him down for the entire year. I believe the the salary was around what 500k maybe. That's all. That's all the salary figure. So. Expect him to win maybe a pitching triple crown this year. Next thing we have the CDBC brothers. Again, they are this. It's been a long-standing joke that we 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 refer them as the the Yankees of the CPBO. Not because of their skill or anything, but more like in Taiwan we all we often joke about how in Taiwan there are two types of baseball fan. Either you're a brothers fan or you're anti-brothers fan. So <laughs> so, so so in that regard, yeah, they are they are the Yankees of Taiwan. <laughs> A few players to look out for is Ariel Miranda. That's the former Seattle Mariners pitcher. The brother spent a lot of. I think he's a he's currently the highest pay CPBO player, foreign player right now. So uh, the brother paying about six or at least reportedly at least six hundred k a year. And a few domestic player will be Lin Zhizhen. He will be a guy to look out for this season. I mean, he's this, uh, he's this aging veteran, but who can still hit? He's right now, he's on pace to break the CPB home run record. So I believe he's only five or six home run away. And maybe another, and maybe he even have a shot to hit, uh, to reach, uh, home run 300. 300 home run, career home run. And the next team is the uni line down south. Now this team is a little bit like your Marlins, maybe a little raw talent, but crippled by poor front office decision and management. So well, let's just say, I mean, for example, this year the CPB implemented a new policy that each team can sign four foreign player. But guess what the Union Line did? They just decided to stick with three. So so it's almost like they don't want to win. Or or their front office just don't care about their baseball team at all. So a few players to look out for is uh Su Zijie. That's the outfielder in that team. I firmly believe that's the guy ten years down the track, he's going to set every single CBBO hitting record in this league. So we'll, we'll so we'll see how that goes. And then the last thing we got the Witching Dragon. That's the expansion team. They're currently in the minor league this year, but I won't go too deep into it. But a few, a good prospect to look out for is Liu Zihong. Liu Zihong, sorry, Liu Zihong. Now this is a, well, I guess you can say him is a, a fight tool prospect. I mean, who can, who can, you know, who can hit, who can run, and who can feel as well. So he's only 19 years old. Got a bright future ahead of him. And can you tell us about what the league is like stylistically in comparison to the majors when it comes to the level of offense, let's say, or the tactics? How does it compare? Okay, so the you're not going to see a lot of bumps technically, or you shouldn't be you shouldn't see that much bump in the CPBL. And another thing is everybody wants to put a bow in play or either swing for the fences because I think they did something about the bow. 
back in a couple couple years ago. So uh-huh. there, there is no point. There's no point, uh, you know, to do any bunting or anything. You just you just make sure you hit it as hard as you can, and you'll get the best result out of it. Interesting. So that's similar to the U.S. There's a mysterious increase in in home runs that people suspect is because of the ball. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think they made the change back in 2015. So where the home run figure just shoot up, you just shoot all the way up. Mm-hmm. We're talking about you went for about a home run a game down to all, all the way up to like 2.5 at its peak at 2016 at 2.5. Well, I don't think they, the league, I don't think is, you know, I don't think the, what happened was, I don't think the league is smart enough to do that intentionally. What I actually think was, they probably want to cut courses on the, on the ball. Mm-hmm. So when you cut courses, you know, the manufacturer probably want to make some adjustment to, to meet their request. So what happened is we got a, we got a, a new ball, I guess, in, in, in a way. And also the league didn't, probably didn't really do any QA on that. So, you know, in a way, it sort of lead to, it just went out of control back in 2016, where you got, what, a tiny little player was hitting opposite field home run, <laughs> and was t- hitting like 10 ho- opposite field home run a, a season, and mm-hmm. the home run rate, it was like 2.5 per game, and I think at one stage, there's even three or four, no, three player hitting over 400. <laughs> yeah, 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 so that's way out of control. Wow. So. Yeah, so after that, <laughs> after that season, I think they really probably figure out, oh, if we do something wrong, let's, let's fix that. So I think they started, they started to QC the ball to make sure it's up to the standard and testing regularly. So you start seeing that number start falling down to a more of a reasonable range, you know, between 1.6 to 2 home run per game, that sort of, that sort of figures. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's less ridiculous, I, I guess, in a way. I guess there's something comforting about every league across the globe struggling to figure out the exact right way to manufacture their baseball. Yeah. You've already mentioned Ariel Miranda and some of the changes to roster construction with foreign-born players. Who are some of the other uh, players who have seen time either as prospects or major leaguers in the U.S. who uh, folks here might recognize? Okay, so there's quite a lot this year. I mean, Ryan Carpenter, who used to pitch for the Tigers... He's pitching for the Rocket and Monkey this year. And there's also Justin Nicolino and El Salvito Bonilla. I hope I didn't butcher that name. So yeah, those guys, they're, they're in Taiwan this year. And who else? For the brothers, we have Jose De Pola, Ismail Roger. Both of them used to pitch for the Yankees organization. And for the uni lines, we had Josh Renneke, Don Roch, and is it Ryan Firabin? That's oh, the yes. knock, that's mm-hmm. a knockable guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So those guys, they're for the Union Lions. Uh, you do have a few minor league prospects, but I mean, we'll, 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 for for this for this thing, we'll just stick with the major. Sure. And what is the level of use of sabermetrics technology? You, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but how sophisticated are teams when it comes to using those advanced stats or technologies for evaluation or even maybe implementing some of the tactics that we've seen here in recent years? It's really hard to say because from, but from my understanding, a few teams are partnering up with with a, I think, I think he's like a local, he's like a university professor or assistant professor and this sort of stuff. And you do start seeing a lot more shift in these days. I mean, we're not talking about a five man infield or six man infield, but we do see a lot of 
second baseman all the way to the outfield grass. And then, you know, where, where everything shifted to the right or shifted to the left, that sort of stuff. It happened a lot these days. So they're definitely attracting stuff and they're definitely attracting things. In terms of the broadcast and, and mainstream media, it's still pretty basic. You know, you got your, your basic slash line. That's about it. I mean, the best you might see is OPS plus. I think for once I saw a TV station actually use FIP during the broadcast, but only once. That's about it. I think, I think, <laughs> I think they probably got a hundred phone calls saying, Oh, what the, what, what the hell is this? So they decided to take it out. So, but, but that happened once. That made me really, I was, I was, I was so proud when I saw that. Oh, oh that's very good. Very good. <laughs> so baseball fans are the same everywhere. I think so. But you, you still look at us, uh, stats nerds on the online community, sure. you know, where, where we, where we start, you know, looking into more, into more stuff. But in the mainstream media, it's about, it's as basic as you go. So you've already mentioned the sort of relative level of play, but I'm curious if there are any players who are currently, any Taiwanese-born players, I should say, who might look to make the jump to U.S. baseball in a couple of years, maybe not immediately, but uh, a couple of years from now. The problem with that is, in Taiwan, we don't have a system in place to prevent our top young talent being poached by the Major League system or the Japan's MPB system. So a lot of time you'll see high school pro, you know, when, as soon as they finish high school, the, the top tier talent, they'll, they'll go, they go overseas. Sure. Um, so yeah. So in terms of what we got left is, I don't want to be too mean about, but you, you, you just get, you, you got to live over. You got to live sure. over in Taiwan. However, uh, the last couple of years with the lease, you know, they start making improvement in terms of their salary and structure. They are more and more able to retain positional player-wise, at least. You know, uh, the first-round overall drop pick can roughly receive about 200k, including performance incentive. So, it's still not a lot of money, but it should be able to retain all the players that could potentially sign for that amount of money and go to the States. Sure. So, I guess, in a way, it sort of contribute to why the league turned into a hitter's league. Because we got all the pitchers still going out, you know, they're getting like 300k, 500k, 600k, or 700k. They, they go out. But we are able to retain all the position, all the top tier positional player. So the lineup are getting more and more stacked. And while the pitching size just, it was just pretty much keep falling and falling, falling every year. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how, this is one of the major factors that leads to the CBB of being a hitter's league. And do you have a sense of how those teams are looking at how their international scouting as they look to, you know, whether it's NPB or MLB, how they're scouting for trying to find and attract foreign-born players is going to change this year? Because obviously, we haven't commenced baseball here in the States. We probably won't for a while. There are travel restrictions. How has scouting changed for them this year? A few teams, I believe, have uh, international scout, or they send scouting team to the U.S., but there are also a few teams that still go for the traditional method, you know, will go with the agent recommendation, they'll, they'll send you clip or something like that, and then they do their evaluation. I think the uni line is one of those teams. I believe those teams that sent off the top of my head, I believe the Lamigo Monkeys, who's now known as Rocket and Monkey, they, they always send their scout to the US to watch, to go to the Atlantic League, I believe. So, just trying to find gems for, for the mid-season replacement. The brothers, 
I think they have an international scout who's a former player, Nick Adderton. I think he probably done scouting in Dominican Winter League and probably down, also down in Mexico. But again, this sort of stuff, I don't know because they, they don't really public, they don't really talk about it in public. So I can only assume. So are there any ongoing trends that we haven't talked about? Things that Taiwanese fans worry about with the league or are excited about with the league? Like we talk about, well, we've covered the ball, but here we talk about pace of play and tanking and all of these ways that teams are built. I wonder whether there's anything similar that's kind of a frequent topic of discussion or potential rules changes, maybe. Mm, so pace of play. One thing about the CPBO game is it's very, very long. I mean, a game will go like three and a half hours, and a certain matchup, it can almost go to uh, almost four hours per game. As for what, they, what are they going to do about it, I mean, people people complain all the time. I mean, it's taking way too long, but the league is not doing anything about it. It made no sense. I mean, given they do have a 12-second or 14-second pitch clock, but they, they never enforce it. So a little time, a few plays you'll see him uh, when he was in the gym, bases loaded. He would just stand on the mound for like minutes, and then, and then and then not do anything. So a lot of time you see that, and you know whenever you see that kind of play on the mound, I'll just go get get a cup of water or go to the toilet, and then and then by the time I come back, he's still on the mound. He's still on the pitch yet. Other than or for tanking wise. This is actually a funny topic. So, due to the CPBO being uh, the lead structure is in the, is in they're using half season structure. Uh-huh. So there's two half season each season. Each team will play a sixty home game. So with a half season format, which lead to a very very interesting playoff scenario. A lot of time towards the end of the season, sometimes you will see team need to lose in order to make it to the playoff. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. So it's like if you if you win, that will put them on. Yes, yeah, so you're gonna have to. Yeah, it's it's very funny. So you mentioned some of the incentives that the playoff structure creates for teams around winning and losing. I think that the league's playoff structure is one of the places where it diverges the most from MLB. Can you give our listeners a crash course in what the postseason looks like? So there are three scenario that might happen in the CBBL. We have scenario number one. Is if each half season is won by two different teams, then those two different teams will play in the best of seven in the in the Taiwan series. So that's easiest scenario, scenario number one. And scenario number two is if a team wins both half season, then team A, that team, will automatically move to the Taiwan series with a one win advantage. So the other spot will be determined by by a best of five playoff series between the second and third overall best team in the standing. So that's that's number two. And number three, this is a tricky one. So if a team has the best overall win percentage, but they didn't win either of the half season, so what will happen is they will need to play a best of five series against one of the half season winner with the lowest win percentage. So this is where we might see, you know, the team might be trying to lose in order to, well, scenario number two and three is where we where we might see you know teams that might have to lose in order to make it to the playoff. Wow. Well, all right. Now everyone can stop uh, complaining about the wild card in, in MLB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I know that a lot of our listeners in our Facebook group have been posting about listening to the English language broadcasts of the game so far, and we may be able to talk to those broadcasters in an upcoming episode, but I wonder what that attention means for the league. It's it's nice for you, I'm sure, and you're happy that the league is getting this exposure, but has it been a source of pride nationally that the CPPL has been the first to come back, and will that increased exposure lead to anything greater investment or more scouting or more players going there or coming here what do you foresee and and what have the audiences been like when it comes to watching even despite the big time difference what will happen i mean this attention is good i mean definitely good so right now what they need to do is to ride that momentum and sort of convert as many fans as possible as they can before everybody, you know, before the MLB or MPB or KBO season come back. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I don't think they can, it will be a long time thing. It will, it will be a short term thing. But I think their main purpose for if what they can do is, if what they can do is they, if they can spread the awareness. So at least people know about, Hey, if I, one day, if I wake up 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. In, in the morning, I know there's a baseball going on at the other end of the world. Where I can tune in and watch. I think that's that's all you need to do. Uh, that's all you need to do for as as a team and or in terms of marketing. That's all you need to need to do because you got you just need to let people know there's baseball available. Whereas in the past, you know, people don't know there is a CPBO. They don't know there's a game going on. So I mean, they they can watch. And with what has been going on, yeah, people people are aware of it. And yeah, I mean, it's just option for them. Maybe they don't have to look. They don't have to be at the end of the day. They don't have to be a a diehard fan for that follow every game. That know every player. They don't have to do that. They just need to know there is there is baseball for them if they are awake in the morning. So, other than your site and Twitter account and the broadcast that we mentioned, is there anything else that American fans should know if they're interested in getting more information about the league or following it for the short term? I see eleven sports Taiwan Twitter account. They're pretty active there, mm-hmm. and the Fubang Guardians and the City BC Brothers, both of them are. They just recently set up their Twitter account, so you can definitely get more information there. Yeah, just get the news from the source. All right. Well, get your news also from Rob at cpblstats.com and at gocpbl on Twitter. Thank you very much, Rob. And I'm glad that you're around to help raise the profile of the league at a time when a lot of people over here are paying close attention. Well, thank you for having me on the show. All right. We'll take another quick break now and we'll be right back with Dan Kurtz to talk about baseball in South Korea. So we are joined now by Dan Kurtz of MyKBO.net and at MyKBO on Twitter. Hello, Dan. Welcome. 
Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to have you. Before you get us all interested or more interested in KBO, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in KBO and how you became one of the English language authorities on the league. Sure. Well, I don't know if I'd consider myself an authority. It's I, I consider myself more of a fan, but because basically what happened was 20 years ago, I went to Korea for the first time. I was I was adopted from South Korea at the age of four months, and then I grew up in Pennsylvania most of my life and had never been back. I returned to Korea in the year 2000, studied abroad there, attended my first baseball game at the same time at Champshell Stadium, saw Tyrone Woods, may ring a bell for some of the hardcore, hardcore <laughs> Asian baseball fans, uh, hit, hit a monster home run, and that got me hooked. I'm a sports fan of all sports, especially baseball, so that's what made me go out to the park that day. Ended up getting hooked. There was a lack of English resources at that time 20 years ago, and there's still not a whole lot of English resources, so I thought I would try to learn Korean by also learning more about the Korean Baseball League and learning more about baseball in Korea. And so f- I tried to put two and two together. My Korean skills are still very basic in elementary, <laughs> ashamed to say, even after taking some classes. But uh, it, I just figure whatever information I can find out in the Korean language, I try to put out to the fans that want to know more about that in English because there's very lack of resources. And so that's how I became, it started out as a message board back then because they were popular. And now it's is to what it is today, just a basic website with some stats and uh, try to aggregate as much news as I can about the league. We're going to ask some questions about the KBO and some of the players there. But before we do that, I, I want to ask, I think even Americans who aren't super familiar with the ins and outs of the league and the players are familiar with the really incredible atmosphere in the ballparks in the KBO, which is much more energetic and joyous than it is in some of the state settings here in the US. And I'm curious what it's been like for you as a fan of the league and an observer of the league as you've watched some of the scrimmages and intra-squads that have been broadcast on YouTube. What has it been like for you to watch KBO in empty ballparks? And how do you expect that to sort of affect your experience of this season? Right. From the fan perspective, again, I'm currently living in the Western United States, so I'm not physically in Korea. I've got, I lived in Korea before, have gone to games. Right. They are, the atmosphere is just incredible. The, uh, everybody asks, what's it like if you can compare it to like the American sporting atmosphere? And I said, the closest thing we might have to it here in the States would be going to a, a major college football game and just how raucous it is there at a football game. That's how it is in the baseball stands. And now my big question, and I'm wondering and curious, I haven't gotten to talk to a lot of the players yet. What's it like for the players, especially the Korean players that have played their entire career growing up in this environment now to going to one of the most sterile sounding environments ever? Like the other day during one of the uh, first preseason games, there was a coach that came out, third base coach came out without a mask on. And the ump said, hey, you need a mask. It was picked up by all the mics on the field. My friend Ji Ho Yu, who's another great writer for the Yonhap News, he said that in his first game, uh, they, they could hear the swearing going on on the field just simply because it is so <laughs> quiet. And sure. I think it's going to be a major adjustment, not just for the people that are watching from the outside, but also the players, because they're not sure they're not used to everything being heard, no matter what they say, whether they're talking, you know, you can put your glove over your mouth and talk, you know, to the, to the catcher and stuff. But then if it's so quiet, you can even hear, you know, certain sounds coming out it's going to be very interesting to see how they they are able to adjust to this new this new way of baseball for them 
So the season's scheduled to start on May 5th, and is there anything that we can take from either South Korea's response to the pandemic or to the KBO's response to coming back that might be instructive as MLB looks to come back? What is it about South Korea's handling of this crisis that has allowed baseball to begin? Well, I say the country of Korea as a whole, the citizens there took the warning seriously. They stayed at home. They did their part and they felt that, you know, if we don't want to get make it worse, we're going to stay home and do our social distancing. It helped flatten the curve over there, which then resulted in baseball, you know, a luxury nowadays sports being played because there's other professional sporting leagues over there. They're getting ready to start up as well. The Korea baseball organization themselves is taking it very seriously by having the players checked for temperature, sanitized. Like I just said, a coach had to have masks on when they're at when they're literally in the game um, for the coaches, not the players. That's not being required at this point. And they said, you know what, if the amount of cases start increasing and one of our players is, you know, test positive, we will shut down the league for at least a couple weeks to three weeks, and then we'll evaluate from there. So the the there was a glimmer of hope last week that uh, American audiences were going to get to watch KBO games because we're all starved for baseball, and this is a great, fun league with wonderful players. And then we learned that ESPN wanted to broadcast the games for free, which the KBO, I'm sure, maybe not so politely declined to do. Have you heard anything that indicates to you that some progress might be made to get these games broadcast in the U.S.? Because I know that there are a lot of baseball fans here who would love to watch live baseball and learn more about this league. Sure. As as a fan who's been following the league for the last 20 years, it'd be, and especially now located in the United States, it would make me so happy to see if I'd be able to turn on the TV Flick on ESPN, Fox, another major sports network and see Korea baseball organization on TV, I would probably like go insane because that's what I've wanted for the last 20 years. But unfortunately, the talks have broken down between ESPN and the league. It's actually not the league. ECLAT is the uh, is the rights t- the international TV rights holder for the KBO right now. And uh, they did not want to give away the league for free because they said to make the satellite transmission and everything for ESPN or whatever broadcaster, it was going to cost them money. So if they were to give it away for free, they were actually going to end up losing money in that deal. So now um, they did say, I don't know if this is just posturing or not, they did say that there are other countries and broadcasters interested, and I've not heard any other update um, that was yesterday of since then. And again, I don't know if that was the league posturing or it could possibly be true because like the entire sports world across the entire globe is shut down right now, except for the CPBL and the KBO, and I think horse racing in a couple of countries. So I know fans want to watch baseball. I want to watch it. I just hope that the league and whatever broadcaster are able to come up with a great deal so that fans can watch it on TV. Currently, right now, they are being broadcast on neighbor.com for free globally. Only live games, though. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and evolution of the league and how baseball caught on in Korea? Sure. Baseball is the professional league known as the KBO, Korea Baseball Organization, started in 1982. It's a very young league compared to the majors. Since then, they've grown it. It's gone from the two new expansion teams have brought it now to a total of 10 teams. And the way that the league is over there, I'm a Phillies fan. Obviously, the Philadelphia Phillies, the city where they're from, in the Korea Baseball Organization, they're sponsored and owned by corporations. And that's why you see, and everybody that's not familiar with the league over there says, the Samsung Lions, the Sam, you know, Samsung Corporation owns it. They truly do 
own that team. And that is one of their uh, ways of income and revenue and possibly tax breaks. But that is what makes it a little different than comparing it to uh, the major leagues. But the league has been around since 1982. They've had record high TV ratings and attendance within the last three to four years. You've seen the success at the WBC as a national team. And ever since that has taken off, the league has just grown immensely in popularity. So I think that most sports fans would say that it is uh, it is more fun to root for a league if you have a team, if you have a vested rooting interest. If you were advising U.S. fans on the teams in the league and could recommend sort of one thing about each of the rosters, and you don't have to go through all of them if you don't want to, but if you could pick one thing for each team that really recommends it and gives fans a reason to say these are these are my guys, what would what would those things be so that you know our listeners can just come out of this and say I am I'm a Samsung Lions fan. Those are that's my squad. Sure. So I'll start off by the not so great, I guess the closest to the Cubs that I would say possibly right now would be the Lotte Giants. And I know the Cubs won the World Series a few years back, but this they're not having great success for such a long time on the field. That would be the Lotte Giants. The Lotte Giants have not won since a title since 1992. And now you have to remember that the league started out with only like six teams, then it grew to eight teams. So from 1992 to 2014, there is only eight teams in the league. Just by the probability alone, you would think you'd probably get in the playoffs and possibly win a championship, but they have not. They've just been struggling. They just hired a brand new general manager who used to work to be the Pacific Rim scout for the Chicago Cubs. So that's why I'm also linking it and also with their success or not so great success over the over the past couple of decades on the field. Another very popular team that is very successful here, if you are a, looking for some bandwagon, would be the uh, Doosan Bears. They've won the championship the th- last three out of four years. And the SK Wyverns, who were led to the championship uh, two years ago by Trey Hillman. And uh, he's since then now come back to the major leagues and become a coach. But uh, they have been very successful on the field. An Oakland A's type of uh, very, you know, trying to find success with a very small, uh, very small budget would be the team known as the Kiwom Heroes. They are the only team in the league that is not specifically owned by a corporation. They are privately owned, and they are sponsored by the Kiwom Group. But um, if the Kiwom Group decides to not sponsor them anymore, they will then just be known as the Soul Heroes, and they always try to get the most bang for their buck and. In fact, they've done very well on the field, and that's why uh, they're very prone to posting players to the major leagues, such as Kang Jung-ho and Park Bing ho Can you kind of, to calibrate the expectations of American fans who are used to MLB, give us a comparison in terms of the talent level? Is there kind of a level of American baseball that KBO is often compared to? And stylistically speaking, I know that up until fairly recently, it was known as a very high offense league, and then the ball changed, and so that changed the level of offense as well. But I know that there are fewer strikeouts, for instance. There's a a bit more action maybe than there is in modern MLB. So what does KBO look like on the field? Sure. And that's always a question that I get when people are like, what's the easiest way to like, what level are they? And that's the hardest thing to translate over, whether it's going over to Asian League baseball or even with guys coming from the Asian leagues over to the majors or the minors. And so honestly, with a roster in in South Korea, you have guys that could be on the mound, like a Hyunjin Ryu, major league, upper level quality. And on Mm -hmm. that same field could be a guy that might not even be in rookie league or low A ball here in the States. Just because of the ta- just because of the amount of players and the talent pool that they have from, there's only 10 teams. There's only uh, about 70 high schools that they're pulling 
high school players from each each year. So the talent pool is much less. So then you have to make up your rosters with uh, various aspects. But on a good day, I'd say if I had to pick a level, it's going to be triple A. Uh, minor league level and on a bad day you're going to see some maybe double a about down to double a there probably and for the most part with the ball being dejuiced over the last since last season or reportedly dejuiced the home runs like you said have gone down there's more strikeouts it's more pitcher friendly and i don't know what's going to happen uh this coming season what the league even though they say that they don't have any <laughs> any any say in how the ball comes about what they're going to do because n- when the home runs dropped i don't know if it just happens to be a coincidence tv ratings and attendance has fallen as well for the league and then this year with no fans coming into the ballpark to begin with it's going to be all re- you know all based on tv revenue numbers so it's going to be interesting what they do but like i said it used to be a home run happy league and all of a sudden it just dropped down last year significantly and they also saw that at the at the box office and on TV. Huh. And so were there similarities in how the league responded to that dramatic sudden change? I mean it's the opposite direction obviously from what's happened in MLB recently but there was no acknowledgement that they had done this and was there empirical data other than just the home run rate to to show that there was really a difference in the ball? Well, what happened was, at least actually talking about the ball, each team, this is a couple years ago before the league have a, has a unified ball, they each had, each team could have their own brand ball and they had to choose between like five manufacturers. And so then the league would have to do tests on these and see the coefficient and the balance and stuff like that. But basically what happened was they weren't, <laughs> the testing was not, was not coming out correctly. And that's why you saw home runs being mashed over and over. The league then says, Hey, we're going to widen up the strike zone a little bit for the pitchers. And it just, it didn't acknowledge that the ball was juiced or dejuiced. It just said they were going to, it's going to become more of a pitcher friendly league so there weren't as many like last year there weren't as many like 12 to 11 ball games you still get that rare one but uh the the scoring was down in the league across the board you mentioned ryu earlier obviously if if u.s fans can tune in they're gonna see and be able to pay closer attention to kbo players are there players who u.s fans should be aware of and maybe keep an eye on as guys who are gonna look to be posted to major league baseball after this kbo season concludes or perhaps in the future there is there's a shortstop for the kiwom heroes who just who took over for kong jung ho when he came over to the pirates this guy, Kim Ha-sung is his name. He took over at shortstop for him. He's a great shortstop. And his team, because they are, like I said, very economically challenged at times, they are. They already came out and told him, hey, we will post you after this season. So he is looking to have a big year so that he can put up the numbers and get get over to the major leagues. Um, there's another guy for the Kia Tigers. He was actually posted in 2014, Yang Young Jun, and he's a pitcher. And the team at that time rejected the bid. And so he's been with Kia and this, this, after this year, he is looking to go and a position player that, uh, I really like is for the NC Dinos. His last name is Na and his first name is Sungbom. He got injured last May and he's coming back and they say he's hundred percent healthy. It was a pretty gruesome injury. I, I posted it once and I then saw how disgusting it was and I'm surprised that he's back so soon, but everybody's hoping that he has a big year so that he can come come across and because he said that he's wanted to challenge himself as well and come across to the majors if that's possible. So everybody's hoping that he is fully recovered and ready to go because the NC Dinos are going to be a very fun team to watch this year because they have foreigners such as Mike Wright, 
Drew Rosinski and Aaron out there. And those are some other guys that you could look at that aren't Korean, but possibly could eventually make it back stateside as well. Yeah, I think that's a question that Ben and I also both had, which is, you know, obviously a number of players come to the KBO from um, not just from the U.S., but from the major leagues sort of more generally. And I'm curious, we've seen some of those guys in the scrimmages that have gone on that have been on YouTube, but who are some of the other players uh, who are kind of making a name for themselves in KBO right now who might be familiar to fans of Major League Baseball? Sure. If you're talking about some of the, the upcoming, the new quote, foreign players to the league. And uh, for the listeners that don't know, each team is allowed to sign three non-Korean players to their roster. And starting this year in 2020, a new rule that came about is all three are able to be active in the same game. Before that, uh, they could only choose two. So most teams would always choose two pitchers and a batter. That didn't change the way they constructed the rosters because every team this year has two foreign pitchers and one batter position player. But in the next upcoming years, it's going to be interesting to see if a team's going to be like, we need the foreign bats. But some of the players that uh, people are excited about seeing this year in the league would be a Nick Kingham. He plays for SK, prospect there for the Pirates. Uh, you had a name familiar to maybe Mets fans, Chris Flexen. He t- he's taken over for Lindblom there at the Doosan Bears. And then in the field, I already mentioned Aaron out there, Jamie Romack. He's been just hitting home runs for the SK Wyverns. Even when the ball was dejuiced there, he was just mashing home runs. And he just hit, I think he's hit two home runs so far in the first two or three games for them in here in the preseason. And a guy that I'm very excited to see is uh, Roberto Ramos. I think he's in the from the Rockies organization, signed by the LG Twins. LG is one of those teams that just uh, over the last couple years could never find a slugger like they couldn't find their their eric teams so they're hoping and praying that this guy is going to do well for them in a not a very hitter friendly ballpark there at chomshill um they're hoping that he can get some home runs uh for them because lg is one of the more popular teams in the league and they have playoff aspirations every year but this year uh with tyler wilson casey kelly and now ramos i have them as being one of the top top teams in the league So there have been some players who've come over from the majors or high levels of American baseball and have seemingly really improved themselves as players while playing in Korea and then have made themselves more attractive to major league teams and have come back over here. So you mentioned Eric Thames and then, of course, there's Merrill Kelly and more recently Josh Lindblom. So what was that? Was there a common thread in those players or in the way that players are developed in Korea that maybe some guys were able to up their game somehow by going? over there? I want to say I can't personally speak for what they personally did themselves, but I did remember Eric Thames saying, you know what, he's in his apartment. He doesn't have all the, when you're in a foreign country, you don't, you're not in your comfortable zone to just eventually go out, do all these different things. So he was basically staying home at his apartment, reading up on hitting, getting, trying to get better as a hitter, trying to find out new ways to improve himself. And that's the way a lot of the guys that go over there, they either will, you know, if they're single they, they have a lot of time, downtime by themselves. And if you're not into like video games or just going, it's not like you can go out all the time. I mean, what else is there to do but work on making yourself better? And then um, the coaches have become a little more, maybe it depends on each team and each coach. Back in the day, it'd be like, hey, we're doing it our KBO style way. Please do what we want to do. Now, from stories that I've heard, they're getting a little bit better and saying, whatever you've done, all right, stick to it. It's been successful. That's always signed you. Let's see it. They may want to tweak with it, but then once once they see that maybe it's not working out for them on the field, they say, all right, go back to what you were doing before. That makes me wonder, you know, obviously there's a, 
an exchange of players that happens every year. And I know that some of the scouting that gets done is based on video, but I'm curious what you've heard about how uh, the delay of uh, baseball in the U.S. and then the travel restrictions that have been the result of this pandemic have affected scouting both of players, you know, Korean players in the KBO who might look to be posted, and then also U.S. players who might be looking to make a move um, either because, you know, they've kind of reached the end of their tenure in the major leagues or because they're sort of in that quad A range and would look to uh, take advantage of playing time and professional success in the KBO. What have you heard about how the current state of affairs has sort of affected scouting? Well, that's that's a great point and question that you're bringing up because there's been some articles going in, at least for the foreign players in the Korea baseball organization right now, uh, teams are allowed to change them twice. They can be allowed to make two changes throughout the season. And if there's no minor league baseball being played right now in the United States, there is going to be a lot less changes is the guess because there's nobody, there's, they're foreign scouts. They can't send them out to watch players and put right. them on their list of who they want to want to sign and possibly replace or because of injury. So the players that are there now might be there for the entire season, which is very rare. It, it does not happen that often. Most teams are very quick to uh, change out some players that are not, they're not performing. On the flip side, for the rest of the league, including the foreign players themselves, of what being one of only two professional leagues going on right now, all eyes are on them. So I'm right. assuming I'm assuming major league front office people and scouts are watch are going to try to be watching the games whether it's on neighbor live or through some other means VPN um, <laughs> and look at the highlights and see what you can and see what players maybe they're interested in because you have a bunch of guys that are playing baseball right now that nobody else is and so you have the the baseball world watching you. And so I think the players do know that and they are excited. And I know some of the foreign players were excited about the thought of ESPN possibly broadcasting their games. But uh, even if that does not happen, like I said, you can still watch games live only on neighbor.com and neighbor TV app. And that's how you can watch them live. But anything on demand and highlights outside of Korean IP address, it, it is blocked for now. And we'll see if that changes throughout the season. If the, um, if there's a, uh, TV deal that gets done or, you know, what the leagues just says, you know what, we're done looking for international rights. Let's just put this out free for everybody because it can help put more eyes on the league and the players themselves. How pervasive is sabermetrics and technology there these days? Has that changed much lately? Have the statistics that are used to evaluate or sign players really changed? And have the games themselves changed in any way? Have some of the recent innovations and tactics in MLB like shifting or pitcher usage come to KBO? Yes, actually, that's going to, it has. Uh, I've been following the league for 20 years now. And before, and even before that, it was a very old school league. They just look at the typical, hey, home runs, RBIs, and see what we can do. And as the league has progressed, as the front office people have gotten younger, they've gotten onto sabermetrics, they've installed TrackMan and all the all the up and coming technology that's around, they've had that at their disposal now. And uh, I mentioned the Lotte Giants, how they hired a new GM from the Cubs. They were purposely hiring him so that he can bring in these new, quote, new ways to their team because they they were not always on the forefront of that. So he he hired the GM there, hired guys like uh, Josh Herzenberg, 
They've hired Kevin Long as their hitting coach, Larry Sutton. He's brought in a slew of new people to that to try to change that team around, not only just on the field, but also how they do things off the field. And so I, as a fan of just the league, am very excited to see how that plays out and see if he is given enough time there in Puzan to get their team to where he thinks it should be and he's basically doing what my 76ers did trusting the process is what he's telling everybody and so he's hoping that the fans uh also give him enough time to get this team turned around based on his new advanced metrics way of doing things yeah between josh and uh, sung min i think the giants have to be the official kbo team of fan graphs uh (laughs) right right exactly that's that's what i'm saying i mean he he went he went outside the typical kbo bubble of what they used to do and just kind of hire retreads and stuff like that he went totally against the grain and i it's great for that team and i'm very excited to see what those guys can do within the front office and on the field yeah so who are some of your favorite players korean players in the league right now that uh, you would point to whether they're you know guys who are likely to be posted or not just who are your favorites who if you were telling a u.s fan tuning in for the first time then you'd say hey pay, pay attention to this guy Okay, well, full disclosure, I cheer for the Doosan Bears. So a guy that I'm going to mention is his last name is Jung. His first name is Subin. He's a center fielder. He's contactor. He makes amazing plays in the outfield. It's just fun. Every 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 year, there's like a super catch is, is the Congress for it. He's always in the mix with like 10 amazing catches in the <laughs> in the field. He He's a guy that's not that's not coming to the United States. Uh, another guy on the same team that is very interesting uh, is Yuhi Kwan. He's a pitcher. He throws, I think I posted a gif of him the other day. I think it was like 73 kilometer an hour, which is like 45 miles, which is very slow. He's not built for speed there, and he has had success as a pitcher for the team. And then the other guys that I mentioned before that are possibly getting posted are very fun and exciting to watch. There's a guy by the name of Kong Bak Ho. He plays for the KT Wiz. He was everybody that had been on the outside looking in was hoping that he was going to be the KBO's version of Otani, a two-way player. He was a very good pitcher in high school, and he was actually a catcher. KT got him, and he says, I want to do both. KT said, ah, I think we're going to put you in the field. So he was, he's was he been he's been in the outfield. Last year in spring training, he tried to pitch, and the, and the team was just like, no, you're still staying in the outfield. And this year, they're actually putting him over at first base some uh, to become that slugging first base for, for them. He's a very young player. Another young pitcher for the Kiwom Heroes would be last name An and his first name Wujin. And he has a very good stuff, highly touted prospect. And if he does have success, he would be a player that the Kiwom Heroes, again, looking always for ways to capitalize on some money, would probably be eager to put him up for posting. So they're also probably hoping that he has success for them, not just for team-wise, but also money-wise. I think a lot of our listeners have probably seen clips of some of the more remarkable bat flips in KBO in recent years, and I know that Mina Kimes wrote about that for ESPN the magazine a few years ago and spoke to you for that piece, but what is it about either Korean culture or the league itself that has contributed to bat flips not really being a source of contention the way they are in the U.S.? Are there larger cultural reasons for that? And does the acceptance of bat flips extend to other ways in which players can be demonstrative or show their personalities? Sure. When you compare the two leagues, say I'm just comparing major leagues and the KBO, it's just two different baseball cultures. It's not only just two cult different cultures in the country they're in, but also two different baseball cultures. So whereas bat flips here in the major leagues will get, yeah, well, over they've been trying to 
get that out of the, you know, <laughs> not getting knocked down as much. It's trying to get, you know, get that out of the game and being police as much, you know, they're trying to, Hey, Hey, let the kids play. They're trying to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, in KBO, a bat flip, whether it's a home run or even a pop fly out to shallow left, the guys will flip their bat. It's just their style, the way they do things. And that's not offensive to the pitchers over there. But some things that are offensive to players here in the United States would not be offensive in Korea, but vice versa. If, if you hit a, in the KBO, if you hit a batter and you don't tip your cap, that's mm. a big, that's a huge no-no. Benches have cleared because of that, especially because with age and hierarchy of the way that it goes. Uh, if you don't tip your cap, mm. it's on. The benches are clearing. <laughs> but here, you know, you peg a guy, whether it's accidental or not, nobody makes a big deal out of it. But he, it's just the different baseball cultures, the different baseball unwritten rules that are ha- that happen on each country and each league. And so bat flips are something that I think it's, they got on in the United States because it was so they weren't they weren't as joyous and they don't happen as much here in the major leagues or they didn't when when everybody's looking at the KBO and now slowly it seems that they're starting to accept them and even market them themselves as a league because like major league baseball cut four they're putting out you know flips and all this and saying hey check out the best flips from this past season and stuff like that right. whereas 10 years ago you would have never seen that mm-hmm. and so I don't know if that culture from the KBO has has carried over or it's just like you know what let's loosen up a little bit let's have some fun yeah seems like basic courtesy to tip your cat if you're gonna drill a guy with a pitch well, i know yeah, that yeah. Uh, <laughs> in mlb you you don't do it because i guess you want to preserve the intimidation factor you you want to leave some doubt in their minds about whether you intended to or not but it just seems like you know sometimes guys will look guilty or, or feel bad about it and maybe if right. it's a particularly bad one they will walk over and express some sort of concern or at least perform that they feel a little bit bad about what they did. But sure, yeah, sure. I think, I you mean, know. they will for one tip their cap and then bow as well. And I, there's a couple I have I've seen a couple of videos or just seen a couple of games where guys are like they're literally on the bench to going tip your cap, tip your cap, tip your cap. And they're getting ready to like they're getting ready to get onto the field because the guy's not tipping his cap. And it's just like that wouldn't be such a huge deal here in the major leagues, whereas there it's very big. That is something, whereas a bat flip on a pot fly is not going to like cause benches to empty. Well, if we were doing a preseason preview pod for a particular team, we would ask you and force you to predict a record. We won't make you do that for every uh, team in KBO, but we will ask you, who do you think emerges victorious this season? Who is the league champion Ooh, when I it's hate- all said and done? You're putting me on the spot because I haven't come up with my season preview. I was supposed to be doing it this weekend. Um, but I'm going to go with the Kiwom Heroes. Like okay. I said, they they are the the Oakland A's of very financially strapped teams sometimes. But the way that they have done things over the years, they've just been successful. Last year, they went 86-57, and 57, finished second to the Doosan Bears in the regular season. They just have... A great young core of players, like I said, Anwu Jin, their pitcher, Kim Ah Sung possibly being posted, plus their pitchers of Eric Jokish and Jake Brigham are very good pitchers, solid pitchers, and that plays out and they get a good ball pin. That goes very far in the KBO. The ball pins are going to be really, really key this season because they're trying to put 144 games in a condensed schedule. So I've seen coaches talk about it. They're worried. They're worried for their arms, so they don't know how it's going to play out towards, say, the middle of the summer, towards the fall. Guys might be gassed just because they're not used to playing uh, so many games in a row if they have to start playing on Mondays. Yeah, Monday's an off day for the league, for the people that don't know. So if they start having to play on Mondays to make up some games, 
these guys aren't going to get a rest and you're going to see ball pens and arms just being gassed. And so home runs might start actually increasing because of that as well. (laughs) So are there any other resources other than the ways you've mentioned of watching it? And of course, your site, mykpo.net and your Twitter account, mykpo. Any other resources for American fans who are interested in following the league or getting more into it? Yes, I would highly recommend checking out Neighbor Sports when a game is on in the middle of the night for us listeners here in the United States. They will always stream live until there is possibly a TV deal done. That's what I was told. They will make the games live, but highlights and games on demand will not be. But then some other great Twitter follows on um, Twitter would be Jiho Yu. Uh, he is a Yonhap News reporter, probably the only English reporter doing a lot of KBO stuff over there in the English language. Another one would be Daniel Kim. He's a broadcaster, does his stuff in Korean, but he also throws out some English news, breaking news as well. There is, as you know, Sungman Kim. He now works for the Lotte Giants, so he's not going to be doing. Um, he's going to do very a lot of Lotte news. I'm assuming if he does put out any news. And then there's uh, Korea baseball history. If you want to learn more about the history, not just of the KBO, but of how Korea came to baseball or how baseball came to Korea, how the KBO was actually formed. My friend Patrick runs uh, Korea Baseball History, and I will probably put it up again as a retweet. I have all these names down there that I suggest fans to go out there and follow them so you can learn more about Korean baseball in the English language. All right. Are there any other trends or storylines that we haven't touched on? You know, I'm always thinking of what the KBO equivalent would be of in MLB. We're always talking about the ball. Well, we've talked about the ball, but tanking or pace of play or all these things that we're constantly fretting about. Is there anything like that that is occupying Korean fans? Not right now. So the pace of play, I always chuckle when I saw it here in the majors. They're talking about the pitch clocks and stuff like that. KBO is actually a little bit ahead. They actually had the pitch clocks. They actually had the pace of play. They actually had the keep your foot in the batter's box or, you know, when the guy got walked, please don't literally walk down, please hustle. So like in, when they started that out in the spring training a few years ago, like literally people were like ball four, sprint into first base. They're just trying to get the pace of play up. There's no talk of robot umpires coming up, although some players probably wish there was because KBO umps can be very, very different than major league umps. In fact, I talked about Ramos for LG. I saw his first at bat in a preseason game yesterday, and he got three pitches. Kingham placed him very nicely, but I probably wouldn't have called I wanted to call them all strikes, and he just looked back at the ump, just shook his head. It's preseason, right? So he's just like, uh, "What?" <laughs> I think I could just imagine what he's thinking. Going, it's going to be a long year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I got some adjustments to make because the KBO umps uh, strike zone can be very different each game. All right. Well, it has been a long year already for all of us, but hopefully KBO will help out a little bit when it comes back on May 5th. And of course, you can follow Dan on Twitter at MyKBO and at his site, MyKBO.net, if you want to be up on the latest in the league. Thanks very much, Dan. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That will do it for today. I will, as always, link to everything that we referenced in this episode, all the resources for these leagues. If you're interested in looking them up, check out the show page or the summary in your podcast app or the Facebook group. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and help keep the podcast going while getting themselves access to some perks. Ryan, Cody F. Schmidt, 
Dirk Keaton, Aaron Schaefer, and Matt Musia. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance as always. If you're looking for some reading material, may I recommend my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. It's out now in paperback with a new afterword that is also now included in the digital edition of the book. So go check it out if you have some time to read. We hope you have a good weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Thank you.